0: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. As the Second World War raged across the world, what was life like for those back in Britain? How did families make it through the terror of bombing raids, How many people really bought into shady black market dealings? And what was it like to open up your home to an evacuated child? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Professor Dan Todman speaks to Lauren Good to answer your top questions on Britain's home front during the Second World War.
3: Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Let's start with some context. When we talk about the British home front in World War II, what are we referring to?
4: Oh, well, that in itself is a great question to start with, um, because I think this idea that there are different fronts to the war is something that we might want to start by unpacking. So, you know, we might think about a simple division between the fighting front where service personnel are in combat against enemy forces and the home front uh, something separate from that but of course one of the things that happens in both big total wars of the 20th century is that actually the dividing line between those two fronts those two imagined fronts gets blurred so the home front will be uh, a place that is itself under attack Uh, And where there's fighting going on, maybe not fighting on the ground, but fighting uh, above and fighting uh, around in the seas around the UK. So, when we think about the home front, I think we tend to think of uh, a kind of shared civilian and military space. Normally, we're talking, I think a lot of what we'll be talking about today is about the experience of civilians. But it's important to remember that the UK home front is one where. There are lots of men and women, as the war goes on, in uniform around all the time. There are a lot of people training, a lot of people doing things that are fighting, whether that's um, flying aeroplanes or uh, manning anti-aircraft weapons. Um, So there's a lot of military activity happening there as well. When we think about civilians, we tend to think both of uh, the activities that those civilians are doing to further the war effort. So things like serving in munitions factories, but also perhaps just the maintenance of everyday life. So things which might not seem like they're connected to the war, but in a total war, all of it's becoming bound up in the mobilisation of resources, of manpower, of minds, which is going to be part of what determines victory and defeat.
3: Great. And let's begin our discussion with food, a central part of daily life, which was a theme of many questions from our listeners. We've received a question on Instagram that asks, how did rationing on the home front work?
4: Oh, good question. And I'm going to give a traditional historian's answer, which is well, it's a bit more complicated than that. You've got to imagine there were several different sorts of rationing. So there's flat rate rationing. That's where there's a, a set allocation uh, which any, every uh, individual has a right to right? a certain amount of things like uh, fats for cooking with, meat, of petrol when petrol rationing is introduced, and parts of those rationing uh, that kind of flat rate rationing comes in um, from the beginning of 1940. In the middle part of the war, you also see points rationing. So points rationing is uh, not a flat rate. It's a set of ration points that have to be spent alongside money on goods that are in scarcer supply. So for things like canned food, sort of semi-luxury items, things like biscuits for clothes as well, there are separate ration points um, in a card book that uh, have to be spent. So you've got an entitlement to a certain amount, but exactly what you've got... Uh, isn't going to be supplied by the government. You get some some there's some vestige of consumer choice still happening. So rationing works through a system of enormous and actually quite minimally regulated really bureaucracy. So there are card ration books. There are uh, either points are crossed out or tokens are cut out. An awful lot of that works uh, on a system of. Essentially, trust between consumers, local retailers, and um, government-organized suppliers. There are spot checks to check that there isn't kind of mass fraud in the sense of, you know, something else being submitted instead of cut ration points. But actually, the system's so massive, it has to rely on most people doing what they're told to do most of the time.
3: And you've talked about this element of trust, and there was some rebelling from this system. Susie from Twitter asks, how many people were prepared to use the black market?
4: Uh, Well, Susie, it depends what you mean by black market. Um, So uh, if we think about black market in terms of real criminality going totally outside the regulations that the government had set in order to, to make a profit, then there's some of that, but it's relatively restricted. Most people see abiding by the rules as uh, something which they're doing to help the war effort, Uh, and so most people stick by them. And one of the ways we can tell that is that after the war ends and a lot of these regulations are still in place, when there isn't that same great shared endeavour, actually rates of illegal activity shoot up. So I think uh, out-and-out black market, relatively limited. The system's quite well controlled by the government, so you know the cases that you see in international comparison, where um, you have absolutely rampant black market activity, things like Naples after the Allied occupation of Italy. That's where you know the the local state is unable to keep control of um, supplies of food and other scarce things. Britain, because it's an island, because the state's very functional, you know, it's quite hard for the black market to flourish like that. There's no real alternative economy. There's an awful lot of grey market activity. So things which people might do to get a bit more of what they want or what they need, which, strictly speaking, are against the rules, but which don't threaten any breakdown in the system altogether. So, for example, you're not really meant to share your entitlement with somebody else or swap it with somebody else. But, you know, at a local level, you see an awful lot of things like people's... If somebody in the street's getting married, people saving up supplies of dried fruit and clubbing together to make somebody a wedding cake or things like that. So I think there's a lot of that sort of grey market uh, semi-illegal activity. It's not um, out-and-out criminality.
3: And existing within this same theme of restriction on the home front, Alex Plotkin asks, just how limited did personal consumer goods become?
4: Well, I think that is a really uh, good way to think about the middle years of the war in particular. So um, when when we're thinking about the home front, it's important not to think that it's a sort of steady state from 1939 right the way through to 1945. Really, the first couple of years of the war, there's an awful lot of material goods that are still in local stockpiles or things like that. You know, people of shops might still have them to sell. Really, it's from 1941 onwards that supplies of consumer goods really plummet. Consumer spending really shoots down. It's a strange moment during the war, because uh, if you think about it in comparison with the 1930s, in the 1930s you have this problem of um, underemployment. You know, large parts of the British workforce, people can't get a job um, that's concentrated in particular areas, but that sense of um, precarity uh, in employment is widespread. By 1941, everybody, everybody who wants a job is in work, and the state is actively pursuing people to make them work, the number of hours that people are working goes up. The amount that particularly unskilled workers are getting paid goes up because labour is in much scarcer supply. So many people have gone into the armed forces. So actually, by by 1941, uh, unskilled male workers are earning 46% more than before the war. So, you know, you think in a couple of years, people's earnings have really shot up, but there's much less to spend them on. So, you know, it's a... it's in international comparison it's not a uh, it's not a wartime experience of real deprivation except the deprivation of choice so if you'd earned that if your earnings had gone up that much in the middle of the 1930s particularly somebody from the sort of the aspirant working class you'd have been able to start to buy some of those consumer goods which marked you out as having a more prosperous lifestyle by the middle of the war, that's not happening at all okay so Things like new clothes, access to personal transport, you know, maybe at a sort of cheaper level of motorcycle or a bicycle rather than a car, all those sorts of things you just can't get hold of. So I think that's where we should think about that consumer spend really coming down. There are other things where the government doesn't control them. It may, maybe it makes them more expensive, but it doesn't restrict access, where you can see that that consumer spending goes instead. So things like personal communications Obviously, with the you know lots of men serving overseas, the population spread out, uh, people being posted to different bits of the UK. People are spending a lot more on things like stamps, so some of that gets diverted. Other parts get sort of pent up, and I think if we're thinking about you know later on, I think we'll talk about the sort of legacy of the war. That pent up consumer spending is something which is a, a, a legacy in the decade following 1945.
3: And you talk about this idea of deprivation of choice in certain areas of consumerism and people did try to work around these limitations. In your opinion, what are some of the most interesting examples of make do and mend?
4: I think there's a lot of things there where there's this kind of mythology about what people did to replace consumer goods that have been lost so gravy browning for uh, stockings with seam draw- seams drawn in eyebrow pencil up the back things like that but in a way you know i think once you start seeing the war in international comparison y- you think it's not really making do by the standards of peasants in russia under german occupation or people in other parts of the british empire where those regulations on the economy and the maintenance supply of supplies wasn't kept up to the same degree. So if you think about who's really bearing the cost of the war in terms of making do, is Egyptian and Indian peasants are the people who the brunt of uh, this war is going to fall on.
3: And to caveat slightly, Lara from Instagram was wondering, were people able to attend clubs and take part in their usual leisure time?
4: absolutely. And you know, the the key example would be the success of the cinema during the war. You know, this is a an era in which cinema going is 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 a key leisure activity and ticket sales go up during the war. You know, it's what a lot of the the increased earnings that come to women during the war, you know, where where they have some disposable income will go on things like cinema tickets. Uh, so things like a lot of the, the aspects of 1930s culture, things like dance halls, you know, all of that keeps going during the war. There are limitations of supply rather than rationing that affect things like the supply of uh, beer, for example. So pubs might run out of beer quickly. Some of that restricts what people can do. But actually, I think it's a time of great of great community. You know, uh, when you know, particularly if you're a if you're a young person, then the war was quite an exciting time and it's this moment when people are mixed up and put into new contexts and very often they do want to seek some distraction or some leisure activity. You know, Often if they're going into the, um, the armed services or the, the women's auxiliary forces, those things will be organised for them. So there's a kind of almost a compulsory level of sociability. Of course, if you're the sort of person who's not into collective social activity, if you just like some peace and quiet... For lots of those people working in in working in factories or, or in the military, the world will be this, this prolonged search for privacy. Just some private space to not be with other people the whole darn time.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging
0: and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a
4: detour.
3: And during this more generic daily life we've just discussed, there must have been a great fear hanging over communities, especially those in areas more prone to attack Kimberly from Instagram asks, how did experiences differ between big cities like London and less populated areas?
4: Well, so I think if we're talking particularly about the experience of bombing, one of the things about aerial attack is that almost everybody at some point during the war is going to hear planes overhead. And planes could mean danger. You don't know what that sound is in the night sky. We've got to distinguish between that that sense of vulnerability and that sense of danger, and of course, German planes can be dropping their bombs, you know, all over the place if they're if they're, of course, if they're jettisoning the bombs to get home. So people in you know who you might think of in very safe rural areas could still be in danger, but the likelihood of them actually being attacked is much lower. The vast bulk of that aerial violence is concentrated actually in just five urban area so the, the majority of casualties from the war you know very concentrated in in london uh, in coventry in liverpool and also in the, uh, the ports along the south coast so you you know if you if you live in a port city or you live in london or you live in a big manufacturing city in the midlands or you live in belfast or clydeside right these are places where uh you know the the fear is very real and even if the majority of nights there isn't an air raid and you're not in danger. Just one big devastating raid can be enough.
3: And you mentioned this differing level of risk across locations. How did preventative methods like blackouts on windows at night vary across locations according to this risk?
4: Oh uh, no, so blackouts blackouts meant to be universal. So it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, I think probably your risk of being identified by the authorities might vary by location. But, you know, we talked about the black market. I mean, the number one cause of prosecutions during the war is offences against blackout regulations right the way through. So actually anybody showing a light could potentially be subject to penalty. And that's true right the way through. Of course, it's it's much more apparent the effects of the blackout are much more apparent in cities where you have streetlights out where you know those great locations of 1930s sociability that we've just spoken about dance halls cinemas would all have been lit up at nighttime. so the absence of all of that makes I think the blackout feel much stranger in cities than perhaps it does in more rural locations where actually you wouldn't have that, had that many lights before the war.
3: And we had a lot of interest in London in particular someone asked what would it have been like to shelter in the underground in London?
4: Oh, awful. Smelly, crowded, too hot, inadequate sanitary provision for most of the period of the autumn 1940 blitz. You know, things get a bit better in the spring, much better by 42 or 43. But no, it's not. It's unpleasant. And actually the majority of people right the way through that blitz don't go to underground shelters most of them won't go to communal shelters. Most people try and shelter in their own homes. So if they're lucky enough to have an Anderson shelter, they might go out into the back garden, but probably only if the bombing seems really bad, because the Anderson shelter is also horrible. It's damp, it's cold, etc. So there's an awful lot of people sheltering under the stairs or just trying to sleep through it. So I think, you know, I think that's a really interesting thing that the, the image that we have in our mind of the Blitz might be those pictures of people sheltering on the tube tracks. And of course, that's a really important part of the experience, particularly in those central London locations which are very heavily bombed. But actually, if we're thinking about the experience of Londoners, most of them might have been under the kitchen table or under the stairs, hearing the bombing happen somewhere else, seeing the fires, you know, in the distance, being very worried about it, uh, being kept awake by it. I think that's a really, really important part of it as well. You know, that sleeplessness. But actually, they're not They're not huddled in the underground.
3: And you've just talked about air raid shelters. Jonathan from Twitter asks, how reliable were these?
4: So the the principle of things like both communal shelters and uh, Anderson shelters and the, the Morrison shelter, which is a reinforced steel table um, that you can have inside your house, which comes along later. All of that, the idea is to disperse the population, actually, So the risk that it's guarding against is of crowding people together in one place and a bomb hitting them and killing lots of them. So the idea that people can shelter somewhere relatively close to them and they're not concentrated in one place works pretty well, actually, right? Particularly against the relatively limited bombing that the German Air Force is able to do in 1940-41 or in 44-45. Would it have worked as well against the, the several orders of magnitude greater bombing campaign which the allies wreak against german cities in 1944 45 probably not okay but that principle of dispersal works okay i think the anderson shelter's good for protecting people against shrapnel so bits of bomb against explosive blast if it's not too close by if it's hit by a bomb it's going to be destroyed but that's, that's not really the point of it because most that's not the risk that most people are going to face. And an awful lot of the wounds that people suffer during the Blitz are to do with being hit by bits of building, by glass or by masonry or you know things being... So it's not just the explosive force of the bomb or the the shrapnel that comes from the bomb itself. It's It's more likely to be a building collapses and it hits them. So again, if they're taking almost any kind of shelter, it protects them against that.
3: And we've talked about people using air raid shelters or hiding beneath their stairs. But something that strikes me is what happened to people that didn't have roofs over their heads?
4: So, I mean, some of those people would have gone into um, larger communal shelters. So particularly in the East End of London, you know, I think some of those are going into places like the Tilbury Shelter. You know, these places where people, you know, some of them might be have been identified and strengthened by local authorities as potential locations for sheltering. Some of them might be just that people had identified them for themselves as places that felt like they were a bit safer, things like church crypts, things like that. So some of them would have sought shelter there. I don't think there's any coherent effort, uh, apart from on the part of local charitable individuals or charitable organisations, to move homeless people into positions of safety.
3: And to escape these dangers, a lot of children were evacuated to less populated areas. A question from Twitter asks, how were homes in rural areas selected for evacuated children?
4: So, partly based on the judgment of the people organising evacuation at a local level, so that would have been largely with women working for the WVS, the Women's Voluntary Service, So they would have sought out people to volunteer for that sort of work, who were people willing to take in evacuees. Really, it's based on who comes forward. Some of it's sort of semi-coerced in the, you know, being made to feel guilty or threatened that the government might requisition the space you've got in some other way. Some, you know, you get an allowance for keeping evacuees. So some of it's people putting themselves forward to get that money, remembering that prices have all gone up, etc., it's not like there is a system of vetting for suitability beyond what is known in local communities about who might have space to take people in.
3: And in this absence of vetting people who took in evacuees, were there cases where it did really fail?
4: I think you've got to see evacuation as a, as a response to a fear of something that didn't happen. Which is, so the what evacuation is trying to guard against, the big evacuation schemes of 1939 are trying to guard against is a a bolt from the blue, all out air attack in daytime, probably with gas, that will inflict all the horrors of trench warfare in the First World War on British cities. So there's a very understandable desire to get chil- children and other vulnerable people away from cities to guard against that risk. Even in its own terms, it probably fails to do that in the sense that about half of children don't leave for various reasons, but it manages to move what a million odd kids across the country in the space of a couple of days with nobody dying. Like, you know, I think if, if you took that to civil contingency planners now and said you were going to try and do that, they'd be astonished at how well it went what it's not designed as is a system for child welfare. Okay. So there isn't a lot of thought. Some historians would say, you know, this is a system designed by middle-class men with lots of experience of the armed forces and in some cases public school. And so the idea of you, know, you send, send kids away, and you can, you can organize the sending away quite easily and then people will sort themselves out. But also I think it's, you know, it's, You've also got to think of it as being an extraordinary success of generosity. Actually, people, you know, so lots of these evacuees will be taken in by families who don't have a lot of space. The idea that, you know, I live in a, I live in a village outside Colchester, you know, where we wouldn't have been in an evacuation area. But if somebody suddenly announced that thirty mums from the East End of London with their babies were arriving at the local station and they had to be found somewhere to live, I only hope that I would have the generosity of spirit to say we'll find space for to bring a stranger into my house. I, like I think that's that's pretty incredible actually. Now I said there's no vetting process, so of course there'll be all sorts of hor- you know. Any time you do something at mass scale, you'll involve all sorts of absolutely horrible individuals so people who abuse kids psychologically sexually physically yeah sure there are examples of that and that's horrendous people who just treat children um differently from how they would have been treated at home just the experience of separating children from their families you know i think there's lots of cases where that's a terrible experience for for those families and That's one reason why so many of the children who were evacuated in September 1939 are brought back very quickly. Because when that big air attack doesn't eventuate, families think, well, I'd rather have them back at home. And you'll see successive waves of evacuation organized by the state and just organized individually during those later waves of air attacks. So again, in 1940, 41, again in 44, people will move away from London to try and stay safe. But I don't think I'd call it a failure. uh, It is what it is.
3: And let's caveat slightly to women's experiences on the home front. What roles did they have?
4: Some women who were previously homemakers will stay at home and be housewives. Some younger women who would previously have worked will do different sorts of work. So in particular, they'll go into factories, factories and engineering work. So, the engineering, the female workforce in engineering really increases during the war. There are large munitions factories set up based on the experience of the First World War and trying to do a better job. Big munitions factories which start to be set up actually before the outbreak of the conflict. So, they're being built from 1938 onwards uh, in the west of the country. Uh, so, as far away as they can be from enemy attack, um, from the air. Normally on flat ground, you know, you don't want to be moving munitions up and down too much you know, away from population centers in case there's an explosion. And these are often run by people with the experiences of large female workforces before the war. So for example, Lions tea house managers are brought in to run these uh, factories because they've got experience of a, a big female workforce. So lots of women in those sorts of roles. Some women will be going, will be joining the auxiliary forces, so the the ATS, the the WAF, the Rens, so the the auxiliary forces supporting the three male um, armed forces, and also I guess lots of women filling in for men who had left to do other work. So, where men had been called up from non-essential industries, or where essential industries had expanded, you might see women going to work. In the same places that their fathers or brothers had worked before the war, where they wouldn't normally have expected to be employed.
3: And women also joined the land army, and it's been much televised and quite romanticized since. What was the reality for women in these agricultural jobs?
4: Bloody hard work. (laughs) Like, I think that's so, you know, agriculture. So agricultural output uh, in the UK um, increases significantly during the war. Mostly that's due to an increase in in mechanical and physical power. There's just a greater investment in resources. More land is ploughed up, uh, more things are planted. And to do that, you need more mechanical power, so things like more tractors, but also just more person power. And part of that is provided by the Women's Land Army. Part of it will be provided by German and Italian prisoners of war. Uh, part of it will be provided by getting school kids and soldiers to help bring in the harvest. So that, you know, I think for, I, I talked about the war as being a potentially exciting time for young people. You know, I think there are, so it it can be an exciting thing for young women to go off and do. So some of that romantic romanticization is understandable. I mean, probably all of us tend to romanticise what we did in our early twenties, and over time remember the better bits and try and forget the bad bits. But I, you know, really that agricultural labour in the nineteen forties is is hard graft. It's not. It's mostly not operating machinery. It's mostly just really hard physical work. And that's what those women were doing.
3: And another element of the home front that has often been televised is the home guard. Who made up the volunteers of this?
4: So what's really so again? Remember, it's not the same all the way through. So there's this astonishing response to the call for home guard volunteers in 1940 when it looks like Britain might be under threat of invasion, and there you see lots of different civilian men, including lots of older men, men who'd served in the First World War. Although remember, if you served in the First World War uh, as a twenty-year-old in uh, 1916 you're not exactly ancient and wizened by 1940 you know you're in your 40s (laughs) so you know I don't think we should necessarily think about it as granddad's army if you think about if you if you have in your mind a picture of dad's army uh, on television it is filled with much older men okay so there are quite a few older men particularly in 1940 but actually throughout the war it's more like dad's army so uh, it's more likely to be filled with either men who are so men who are too young to be called up, men who are in reserved occupations, so they're not going to be called up. They're exempted from military service. Some older men, but actually, you know, again, it's very it's hard work being a home guard, particularly if you're working during the day. And remember, you know, everybody's from what I said, everybody's got a job. Right. So, you know, if you're an older man, you probably working. You might have come out of retirement. You might be working longer hours. Then you've got to go and put your uniform on and do some service in the evening. As the Home Guard gets more professionalised during the war, its training exercises get harder. The physical labour they're expected to do gets more intense. So it's, you know, uh, as the war goes on, those older men who might have tried to do their bit in 1940 will increasingly leave the Home Guard. So actually, it gets it gets younger as the war goes on, and less amateurish. So you know, and again, sort of understandably, in nineteen forty, it's whoever's available uh, to try and guard against the risk of German parachute landing somewhere. By the middle of the war, although actually the likelihood of the home guard being used has plummeted, but it's 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 younger, it's better trained it's got much more access to to modern weaponry never the the you know so lots of the things the home guard will be famous for using are these kind of um, improvised weapons against anti against tanks which you know wouldn't have been good enough for the the regular army but for things like submachine guns and rifles the home guard's pretty well armed by 1942 and certainly in that middle bit of the war so it's 42 through to 44 when it's disbanded it's quite a well-organised organization.
3: And you discussed their German parachute landings and invasion came in many forms during this period. Quite a few people were interested in espionage. And a question from Twitter asks: what measures were there against espionage on the home front?
4: So a whole set of defense regulations which affected where where you could where you were allowed to go where you might be moved from. So, you know, parts of the country, people will be moved out of if they're um, areas that need to be defended or which the army is going to take over for practicing or you know, things like that, That also prohibit certain things, certain behaviors. So taking photographs of defense installations, uh, having a carrier pigeon in the wrong place, things like that. So uh, that's at a kind of general level. And then you've got a... a Really a pretty effective security organisation run through a combination of MI5 and Special Branch, which is meant to pick up anybody who might be a potential spy. It's pretty easy to control access to the UK. The spies who the Germans try to parachute in are not terribly competent. Again, as the war goes on, the British security services get better and better at uh, identifying potential spies and turning them back. So, you know, there's a there's a great success there in terms of controlling the flow of information uh, out of the UK during this period.
3: And finally, considering everything we've talked about, Dan, what were the lasting impacts on the British home front following World War II?
4: I think all my answers would be in terms of the legacy of disruption. So one would be about um, the damage that's done to British housing stock during the war. One of the great changes that Britain had seen in the 1930s was the knocking down of lots of slums and the building of new housing. Living standards for most people are still pretty poor, but there's an aspiration which is there through the conflict but significantly set back by it. And by 1945, millions of families will be living either in in houses that have been damaged by bombing and had kind of patch-up repairs but are still leaking or there's a room they can't go into or the windows are boarded up or... They've been bombed out and they're living with their in-laws or they're renting a room in a, from a, a landlady who's had to rent out rooms because her husband's away in the armed forces, something like that. So there's this great desire for housing and that's gonna be one of the big political issues that dominates really through into the 1960s and that shapes an awful lot of that. So a lot of that immediate post-war experience is about people living cheek by jowl in inadequate housing. Another one is the disruption that happens to families Uh, because of the ways in which they're separated. And again, I think we could read that in two different ways. So one would be about the damage that's done to family life and those families which aren't able to repair themselves. So the marriages that break up or the the fathers who come back from the war changed or the fathers who come back and the family has changed because uh, the kids have grown up and their mother's been out at work in a way she wouldn't have been before but actually i i would sort of flip that on its head and say actually most families display extraordinary resilience actually what's incredible is how often they are able to come back together i think there's a really interesting legacy from women's work you know an awful lot of an awful lot of women when they're asked in the at the end of the war actually say that they they quite want to go back to a kind of 1930s normality right uh, they want They want to be back at home, and they want their husband to be back, and the husband to have a job. Of course, if you're a younger woman and you're not married, you this might be something that you want to continue doing. If you're an older woman and you've actually been able to earn a decent income for the first time, it might be something you want to continue doing. But actually, most of those women who've been employed during the war will lose their jobs when the war finishes. But I think there's a legacy in terms of how they think about their daughter's employment in the 1960s and 1970s. So it becomes a different way of thinking about what's acceptable or what's normal or what the advantages of work might be. And then, you know, that people really want a better world. And during the war, that will take on a particularly communal aspect. So one of the ways you could think about Labour's victory in 1945 is a greater willingness to work together to improve the lot of the least well-off. But there's also a strong element in that of deferred gratification, that all of that desire to aspire to a materially better life, to have all those bits of consumerist lifestyle, which uh, the middle class, the small middle class had had in the 1930s, maybe a washing machine, perhaps a car, perhaps a home of your own. All of those things are also baked in. And when Labour can't deliver those with a socialist solution, as it appears in the late 1940s, are going to be part of what underpins the period of conservative electoral dominance.
0: That was Professor Dan Todman, historian of war in its remembrance and head of the School of History at Queen Mary University of London. Dan's books include the two-part volume, Britain's War. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.